Brothers and sisters in Christ, today I hope you will be pleased to know that we are going to have a short sermon. <laughs> well, why? Um, well, the first thing is I need to try out my glasses. Um, I've discovered that uh, having short arms is, is advantageous for singing, though, because it means that I can read the little words while I'm standing back here somewhere. So hopefully you guys over there can, can see it. But um, whilst I'm doing my sermon, I think I'm going to be trying the, the glasses. So it's a bit of an experiment. So why is the sermon going to be short? Well, it's because I only have two verses left in James chapter 1. And in chapter 2, a whole new section begins that is necessary to handle on its own. It's, it's, and if I tried to do them both at once, it just wouldn't make any sense, A, and B, it wouldn't be a short sermon. <laughs> now, I know that uh, God's Word is, is so rich that, um, that somebody like Calvin could speak at length over just one or two words. But, you know, I think there's also value in a simple lesson that is clearly preached, or at least I hope it will be clearly preached, and I really have no desire to pad out a message unnecessarily. So our challenge this morning is to examine our hearts to discover whether we are religious or real. And why are we here today? And I'm, I don't mean why are we alive today, but why are we in this church? What are we going to do when we leave here? And are these things consistent here, there, or, or everywhere? So let's start then by reading through James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, his religion is vain. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Now with all this talk about religion, it seems that James has made a little jump from his previous topic, which was the importance of being doers. If you might remember, it was some time ago that we spoke about this. But actually he hasn't, because he wants us to see the danger of living only by doing, or perhaps believing that doing is the be-all and end-all of religion. He wants us to see how Genuine doing can only be driven by the gift of a new heart, which is given to us when we accept Christ as our Savior. I think all of us will have spent some time thinking about what sort of behavior it is that really makes us a Christian. What do I have to do to make it real, to live in obedience to God? Well, James has laid it out for us here. I must hear the word, yes, but on its own, that's not enough, because then I must go and do it. It's critical that we understand that the two are not at all separate. One must really flow into the other, doing from hearing and hearing from doing. To do just one or the other will only make us half a Christian. And when you stop and think about it, that actually makes us no Christian at all. And when I talk about hearing, it's more than just the reception of sound by these fleshy things on both sides of our head, which then turn those vibrations into electrical signals, and then our brain says, oh, that's a noise. The sort of hearing that I'm speaking about, it does start with that, but it doesn't finish in the same way. 
Uh, I think most of my sermon will finish in the way of dribbling out your other ear. Um, but this kind of hearing, it, it hits our heart. It really strikes us in the heart and it changes our action and it changes them forever. And uh, through this process, God achieves the accountant's dream of making one plus one equal three. Okay? I'm sure most of us would like that when we're selling things. It's just like cars and petrol. If I have just got a car or I just have petrol, well, neither of them is particularly useful on their own. But if I put the petrol inside the car, well, now I have something that is more than just the sum of its parts. Because imagine, I can go anywhere. I can do anything. I can do amazing things. And that's, that's just what God's Word does when it hits our hearts. It works on and from our hearts to change us. And from that change, we must begin to act differently. And if we act differently, then the experiences that we're going to have through those actions are going to help us to understand more and more of what God is saying to us. Okay? God is speaking to us again, and that, of course, just feeds back into that whole cycle, and it just gets better and better. And that's what this whole process of sanctification is about, or should be about, that I spoke about in my last sermon. So, in this context, what is James warning us about? Well, he uses a Greek word for religion, which is threskos. And this particular word, it describes just religious ceremony or outward displays of worship. And not necessarily those in a Christian sense. Be, it's not just a, a Bible-specific word. It's a word that people use in general conversation to talk about going to see Apollo or any of those other gods. Okay? There's another word which uh, we should contrast this with, which is called eusebeia. And that's the word that's most often used in the New Testament to talk about a genuine type of worship for God that comes from right inside us. You know, it's just too easy to get into that cross thing. Um, one of the things I think I have in common with many people is the desire for approval from those around me. And this causes me to behave in ways that are not always entirely natural. So a lot of the time the question in my mind might be, well, what can I do that will make these people accept and like me? So in a church environment, I'm going to adopt a very serious face, I'm going to wear my best clothes, and I'm going to speak only the very best Christianese. You might even see me toiling at a working bee, but really, my faith is thin and hollow. The thing is, because this facade fools you, it will make you accept me, and because you accept me, I will be fooled into believing that this external religious activity is good and is enough. But what will always catch me out? Well, of course, it's my mouth, my gob, my big fat cake hole. <laughs> Sooner or later, you're going to hear me saying something I shouldn't and know that what you see is a lie. So it's not for nothing that this orifice is sometimes called a trap. And it always will be a trap for me if I do not bridle my tongue. So, all of this is what James is talking about. Empty personal and corporate behavior is 
useless. It gains us nothing, and it only fools our heart. How can we recognize it? Well, the fruit, or more specifically the lack of it, is right here on our lips. If we rely solely on ritual for salvation, we are deceived. We will not have God's power within us, and without that power, we will not show its effects outwardly. Now, in order that we might be a bit more aware, what are some of the other signs of a religious man? Well, I've drawn up this little table to help us. It's not especially scientific, and I wouldn't be surprised if somebody came up to me afterwards and improved it, but I think it covers most of the bases. Now, I want to just run through it very quickly, and I'm going to focus mainly on the religious Christian. And now, you're looking at this, and maybe you're thinking, well, yeah, this is very, very obvious. Why are we going to waste time talking about it? But I want to ask the question, how many times have we pay, not paid attention to stuff that is right in front of us, that can have very, very serious consequences for us later? It is very good for us to lay our lives down regularly on God's ruler just to see how we measure up. Remember, our senses are easily fooled, and I've spoken about this many times. You know, if I asked everybody here to close their eyes and hold up their hands in what they thought was a meter apart, I'm sure if I took a picture of it and showed it to you afterwards, we'd have some really interesting differences. And this is why we use a ruler when we build a house, because if we didn't, nothing would fit or be straight. If we do not ponder on God's centimeter, if we are too proud to check it regularly, if we don't go back to it again and again and again, we might come to understand it completely out of proportion and nothing will fit or be straight in our lives. So, ask yourselves as we go through this table, is this me? And if it is, what should I do about it? So the first thing you might notice is that right at the top, the term religious Christian. Now, you and I, I might know that this man isn't really worthy of the term Christian, but he doesn't, and that is a real tragedy. I pray that God would grant us the opportunity to witness to others the truth of Christ's salvation. But as we do that, if we even begin to start to feel the tiniest bit smug because we are real Christians, then we are in sin. Because nothing that we have done has merited God's saving grace. We should always be proud and, sorry, <laughs> that's a terrible slip of the tongue. We must always be humble and not proud. The religious man will often rely on ritual. Now, my late father-in-law he used to talk a lot about bells and smells, which is a great description of some of the rituals used in church services. Now, I'm not saying that there is anything wrong with qualified religious ritual. Remember that worship in the temple? Well, it was very, very highly ritualized. And moreover, that ritual done with a reverent heart and a worshipful spirit is not wrong, and it's pleasing to God. But we have to beware of believing that just doing ritual or doing church in this or that specific way is going to guarantee that we are a Christian. 
The religious man, well, he might speak words of praise, but they are hollow because often he's talking to somebody like the big man upstairs or that, uh, that kindly old gent with a beard. He doesn't recognize God as righteousness, as the creator of everything. He cannot understand the enormity of Christ's sacrifice on the cross for us or the privilege of having the Holy Spirit as our guide. Because he does not understand the freedom that comes from knowing the truth, he will often rely on endless rules and regulations to guide his actions. And he will often wield those same rules and regulations as a stick to beat those around him who, in his estimation, do not measure up to God's standards as well as he does. Now I came across a really good example of, of rules and regulations. Um, when the Pharisees asked Jesus, teacher, which is the great commandment of the law, they were hoping to trap him with exactly that kind of legalism because it was a really, really loaded question. The rabbis had worked out that there were no less than 613 separate laws in the Pentateuch, which is the five books of Moses. Okay? They then divided up these 613 laws into affirmative and into negative groups on the basis that there are 248 affirmative laws, one for every part of the human body, and 365 laws, which were negative, which is one for every day of the year. Okay, following me still? Then they had divided these laws up into heavy, which were absolutely binding, and light, which were less binding. Now the problem was that they could never agree on which were heavy or light. So they delighted in spending hours and hours and hours in debate about which laws were heavy and light. And they were hoping when they asked Jesus this question, you know, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law, that he would just name one and thus expose himself as a fraud in their estimation. Of course, Jesus was much too clever for this, but right up to this day, men continue to fall into this trap of legalism. In his mind, the religious man sees himself as very big, but God is very small. And so he relegates God to a little g, a worthless and ineffectual God that is so far from the truth that really it is a great, great tragedy. He will know some scripture and may well, very well quote it to us. In fact, sometimes he even knows a great deal of scripture. But unfortunately, he remains ignorant of what it really means because he doesn't have the Holy Spirit to help him understand. Church attendance is strictly for Sundays, 9 to 11, and that's quite enough, thank you, because there are lots of other things to do in the week. Now you'll notice that there's an awful lot of yous up there, okay? And that's because I was a bit stumped for yous, so I started looking through the dictionary and I found lots of great ones. I think the best one, though, is that word unctuous, which in its most perfect explanation means oily or greasy, but it also means smug or gushing with an exaggerated affectation of sincerity earnestness or enthusiasm. Hmm. Doesn't that sound a bit like the religious man sometimes? The saddest you 
is that the religious Christian is unacceptable to God because he remains sin-stained. We should ask ourselves, what part can we play in discipling and praying for that man to bring him into God's kingdom? So, with all of these characteristics in mind, why does James just single out the tongue? Well, you know, in a real sense, it's the most visible part of our character. And by way of demonstration, I want to ask, is there anybody here who's ever thought that they might like to write a book? Yeah, you've thought about it? Nobody else. If you haven't thought about writing a book, what's put you off? You know, for my part, I can say it's the number of words that are in the book. Okay? You know that the average person, and by the way, that's not Keith Bunn, will speak about 18,000 words a day. And that works out to be enough for 66 800-page volumes in one year. Hey, that's enough for a whole encyclopedia, never mind a novel. And you thought that you couldn't do it. But what are those books going to be about? I think that's a really good question. A little listening is soon going to tell us whether the heart that wrote those books is controlled by God or not. Ezekiel 11.19 speaks of how God puts a new heart in us. I will give them a new heart and put a new spirit within them. I will remove the stony heart from their bodies and replace it with a natural heart. And Matthew 12.34 tells us of the fruit of that new heart. You brood of vipers, how can you say good things when you are evil? From, for from the fullness of the heart the mouth speaks. I think the connection's obvious. If we are going to be renewed in our hearts by God, then the fullness of those hearts is going to express itself in the mouth by godly speech. If the heart is not godly, then the speech is going to reflect that. It's a very clear test, exactly as James has pointed out. Although we have been looking at the tongue for evidence of internal condition, well, there are external results to be considered as well. You know, a horse... Once you've trained it, he's still an independent animal. He's still going to run around and pretty much do what he likes, but by training and use of the bit and bridle. And let's just remember that that bit can be used to cause pain if, uh, if necessary. And that's just in the same way that God's discipline will sometimes hurt us. Well, by using those things, we can gently and firmly direct where the horse goes. God desires us to use our mouths in a disciplined and directed way. The consequences, if we don't, are serious. And mouth sins are not trivial. Unfortunately, mouth sins have sometime, somehow become domesticated and entertained, in many cases, by the modern church. Gossip, backbiting, and slander have just become viewed as naughty little habits that really aren't so serious. However, when Paul wrote to the church at Rome, he sternly held that gossips, slanderers, and bad-mouthers were in the same league as, guess what? Murderers, sexual perverts, and haters of God. Furthermore, he said that such sins are worthy of a death sentence. <laughs> we need to take them seriously. Matthew 12, 37 warns us, By your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. When a Christian allows their mouth to be uncontrolled, it reflects badly not just on them, 
but of course it reflects badly on God as well. And if we have respect for our God, then we should seek to avoid that at all costs. What does your mouth and my mouth say about our hearts and consequently about God? I just want to finish this, this section. One of the um, concordances I read on the tongue put the, very wisely in this way. It said that discretion in speech is better than fluency in speech. Well, I think that's a good thing to take away from this sermon. Let's move on now to verse 27. If we know that real religion is not mere empty ritual or behaviors, well, then what should it be? James doesn't delay in telling us. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. He reminds us saying before God and the Father that we should be aware that the judgment of what constitutes a proper response is made by God and by nobody else. Okay? None of the people in this building have any importance at all in deciding what proper religion is for me. Only God can define that for me. When Jesus died on the cross for us, he accepted the punishment due to us for our sins, and he purchased for us eternity in heaven when we die, and the reality of a two-way relationship with God whilst we are still alive. You know, when we stop and think about just how little we actually deserve any of those things, we will start to understand, or something I struggle to understand, to be very honest, just how enormous God's love must have been for us to give these things to us. And if God has done something so big, so enormous for us, well, we ought to see some big results. We know that there are some great internal changes for us. But again, I ask the question, what are we going to see on the outside? Well, if we have been truly in, inwardly transformed by the saving work of Christ, then one of the ways that that saving work is going to work its way out is in the care and concern we show for others. And this is very consistent because it's exactly in line with the second of the two great commandments that are singled out by Jesus, which is to love our neighbors as ourselves. James reminds us that we cannot pick and choose those who benefit. God wants us to look after widows and orphans because they are often amongst those on the very margins of society with the greatest needs. And this was particularly true at the time he was speaking because in biblical times, of course, there was no life insurance or social security as there is today. You know, it would be nice if we only had to visit people in nice big houses who could offer us tea and cake on the best china, but that just isn't the case. Now, I use that word visit because it is the word that is used in place of care in some translations. Some translations say to care for orphans and widows, and some say to visit. But the Greek that's used really means more than just popping around to say good day. Okay? It carries the idea of really care caring for others, helping them to make decisions, 
and being there beside them for whatever is needed. So, no matter how uncomfortable it makes us, we ought to be prepared to go anywhere, to do anything, and we jolly well ought to be the ones who are offering the tea. And this idea of care for widows and orphans is no, by no means a new one in biblical terms because there are lots and lots of references to God's requirement for us to do so. And most of them will be found in the Old Testament. And although widows and orphans are most often singled out, we have a requirement to help everyone who is in distress. Matthew 25 has this to say, For I was hungry, and you gave me food, I was thirsty and you gave me drink, a stranger, and you welcomed me, naked and you clothed me, ill and you cared for me, in prison and you visited me. We should be prepared to help everyone, no matter who they are. And God is our great example in this, because although we were repulsive to him in our sin, he reached out and he saved us. There is no man who has ever lived who God would not save if he would repent. And that can sometimes be a distasteful thought because we want vengeance. When we think about some of the great tyrants in history, people like Hitler and Stalin and Robert Mugabe. Okay? But God would save those men if he could. And uh, if God would do that, why should we be any different in the way we reach out to people to help? There's a final qualifier in the verse and to keep oneself unstained by the word, by the world. We must be prepared to apply the word of God without moral or spiritual compromise. Moreover, the Greek that James uses for the phrase to keep indicates that this is a standard that we're going to be doing continuously. It's not like this morning I got up, you know, and I felt like being unstained by the world. So I'll do that. But Maybe by the afternoon I've had a bad experience, so I won't bother. It's not like that. Okay? This, is, this is something we need to have in the front of our minds, and we need to be doing all of the time. In the same vein, in 1 Peter 1, believers are called to conduct yourselves with reverence during the time of your sojourning, realizing that you were ransomed from your futile conduct, handed on by your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a spotless, unblemished lamb. Now, we're talking about keeping oneself unstained by the world. And sometimes it can be hard to figure out what that is, because we know that it's not possible for anyone to achieve sinless perfection while we are on earth. But we should remain with no illusions as to what the standard actually is is. Now, that's what God requires of us, and that's how hard we need to try. It's not that being perfect proves our salvation, but rather that we hate being imperfect, and we try as hard as we can to change with God's help and power. It is our heartfelt desire to speak and do all things in a holy, loving, and obedient way, to be truthful and honest and upright in our conduct. In short, to be all things that the world generally is not. We demonstrate to the world that we are true Christians by the way that we talk and the things that we do. Now lastly, the only way that we can be stained by that world 
is if we are actually in it. And that's the point, isn't it? You know, Christians are not called to live apart from real life, to safely shut ourselves away. Although we must not be stained by the world, we are called to bring the light of Christ where there is none and to be the salt of the earth. And this might be at great personal risk. We cannot call ourselves Christians if all we do is in this building in the fellowship of other believers. We must go out to the world because for sure it's not going to come to us. So, why are you sitting in this building today? Is it to fulfill an obligation to know that you have done church for the week? Or is it out of the genuine desire of your heart to gladly meet with fellow believers, to hear God's word and worship him? When you go out of this building, is it to go and do God's work in the world or merely your own? I pray that you would consider this carefully and deeply and with prayer because none of us want our religion to be in vain. Let us pray. Father, your word truly is sharp. It pierces us, Lord. And I pray that that piercing would drive us to, to obedience. And Lord, not just because of, of pain, but because of the love that we share. Because of the love that that allowed you to humble yourself and, and come to earth as our saviour. And Lord, the love that we have for you. Lord, I pray that when we leave this place today, that we would guard our mouths and we would, we would behave in a way that was, that was respectful and worshipful of you. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.